You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This show was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Ray Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stock. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, archaeologists, children, authors, and more, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. Just offshore of the KWMR listening area are the Greater Farallons National Marine Sanctuary and Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, which together protect 4,881 square miles. So stick around for a great show here on Ocean Currents. Just as there are growing seasons on land, there are growing seasons in the ocean as well. In California waters, the start of the growing season begins in early spring when the first phytoplankton blooms. In California, as in many parts of the world, euphousid shrimp, known as krill, are one of the beneficiaries of this early season production. Feeding on phytoplankton and small zooplankton helps krill populations expand and become a critical link in many marine ecosystems. Krill are the bridge converting energy from the primary producer level into a form that is usable by animals in the upper levels of the marine food web. Krill are a major food source for salmon. The krill pigment help give salmon flesh their beautiful characteristic pink color. Rockfish, seabirds, and a myriad of lesser known species depend on krill. Megafauna such as endangered blue finned humpback whales migrate up and down the coast to feed on it. In many of the world's ocean, krill is a critical source of energy for seabirds, penguins, seals, sharks, octopus, and many species of whales. Without krill, our oceans would be a very different place. So with November being the season of abundance and gratitude among us, I thought it was time to cover krill here on Ocean Currents. So with me in the studio today is Jeff Dorman. Jeff is the executive director of the Farallon Institute for Advanced Ecosystem Research. As a scientist, he's passionate about understanding what drives ocean productivity and how climate change will impact our ocean resources. So, Jeff, welcome to Ocean Currents. Thanks for having me here. So, scientists like yourself have reasoning to go into the field they do. What got you into krill? So, uh, my introduction to krill came with when I moved to the West Coast. I came out here to do a master's degree at the Romberg-Tiburon Center, part of San Francisco State, and immediately got on a boat. Um, found out that the west coast of California, right off of Bodega and right off of Point Reyes Station, is one of the windiest places on earth. And we got we bumped around out there for a month, towing nets and bringing them back on board, and really bringing in just krill, tons and tons of krill. And that's what I worked on for the next couple of years, analyzing those nets and looking at. The amount of krill that came back, the, the number of females versus males, the size of the juveniles, and how many eggs were out there. So yeah, it, it became very quickly apparent to me how important they were in the ecosystem. That's great. Tell us a bit about the Farallon Institute and how krill is a major area of focus for the organization. So Farallon Institute is a nonprofit based in Petaluma, California. 
been around for about 10 years, with the goal of, of really understanding our coastal ocean ecosystems so that we can better manage them and better utilize the resources that are in them, make sure that what we take out of the ocean is appropriate and so that there'll be more to take out the next year. So we work across the entire ecosystem. We work on climate variability and understanding how those changes year to year drive the productivity of the ecosystem. We work the lower part of the food chain on phytoplankton, and then sort of where my heart is on, on krill and other zooplankton, all the way up to top predators, understanding how they all interact. And krill and other forage species, anchovy and sardine and herring, they're really right in the middle of this food web. And you know, everyone, all the top predators that we really care about um, from a fisheries perspective, they, they all feed on those important resources. So understanding how they change is critical in understanding those fisheries. Absolutely. So I want to start with just some natural history about krill because they're so fascinating. And my time here on the West Coast as an educator learned so much about krill that I feel like I there's so much more that scientists like you know. So here in California, I understand we have two species or are there more? Well, there's up off this section of coastline, there are two dominant species, Euphausia pacifica and Thysanoessa spinifera. So those are their Latin names. There are certainly more that we uh, will pull up in our nets, but those tend to be the two most dominant. So how often do you get other species? I'm always interested. Why? How? <laughs> yeah, and it's a good question. I, we do get other species almost all the time. And some might be more oceanic species. So as you go further off the shore and get out in the ocean, while well, you'll still find sort of our dominant species, which is Euphausia pacifica, you'll start to get other species in those nets. And it may be that they've just, they're outside of their normal range because they are plankton. They get moved around by the currents. And so if the currents move them in that direction, there's not a whole lot they can do about it. So these two species, Pacifica and Spinifera, the little short names for them, they have kind of different niches in how they travel and spend time in the water column. Is that true? Yeah, they do. I, the big difference between the two is really just the size of them. And it's very noticeable when you get full-grown adults of Pacifica versus Spinifera. The Spinifera are a lot bigger. They're only maybe a half a centimeter bigger in length, but the size, the 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 girth of them, they're, they're a lot bigger. And you could see that They'd be a lot more important, you know, if you were a predator, um, you'd much rather eat a spinifera than a pacifica. But they do occupy slightly, they overlap, but they, they occupy slightly different niches in that you have spinifera much more inshore and pacifica offshore a bit more. So you see them in different locations, but they certainly overlap. And how about size? For those that don't have a rel- you know, a, right. a gauge, how big are, how yeah. big are krill? So the adult of Euphausia pacifica get to be about 24, 25 centimeters. So basically just about, or 25, 24, 25 millimeters, just about one inch. And spinifera will get slightly bigger to about 30 millimeters. And that's really just the adults. I mean, much of the krill in the water column are larval stages or even juveniles, which are much smaller. They become adults when they get to be about 12 millimeters, and they start reproducing maybe at about 15 millimeters. So most of the krill out there are not 24, are not a full inch long. They're usually much smaller than that. What's a typical lifespan of krill? Well, that, it's an interesting question because it really depends where you are. There's been studies down in off Southern California that found that they would live about eight months. Up here, we think it's about a year to a year and a half, while up off of Oregon in much colder waters, 
they'll often overwinter and live almost for two years. So really, it, it's dependent on the on the warmth of the water they're in. Does the warmth relate to the food in the water, or is it just more effect on the metabolism as the water might have that influence? Yeah, I think it's much more of a metabolic um, aspect. They, they might grow more slowly, but live longer in colder waters while they grow much faster, but live a much shorter time in warmer waters. And these yeah, they, they exist all up and down the coast. I don't think there's been specific studies on that for our region. So we just sort of take the, well, six to eight months off Southern California and two years off Oregon. We, th- we think we're somewhere in the middle. So these are little crustaceans, euphausids, and they have, uh, they, well, they spend their entire time in the water column. So here goes the question about plankton versus necton. Necton being something that can swim. And where do you consider them? So krill are almost always classified as plankton in that they get moved around by the water currents. They go wherever the water currents are. They, But I tend to think of them right at the boundary of necton versus plankton. plankton. They're, very, they're pretty good swimmers. They can move around. They move around vertically in the water column quite a bit, but they can also move horizontally. It's just a matter of what cues might cause them to move vertically, aside from predation, which would cause them to move very rapidly. But they're certainly good enough swimmers that they could they can control their positioning pretty well. Overall, they're considered plankton, though. There's still a little bit of influence there, especially in their young larval stage. They must be very planktonic. So how do they reproduce? Do they mate or spawn or what? Yeah, I can't say I've ever seen them reproduce, so I don't know <laughs> that. Um, but the males have little packets called spermatophores, and they'll attach them to the females. And so one of the things when you pull them out of the nets, one of the interesting things to look for is not just to look at the male, the number of males versus the number of females, but look at the number of females that have these spermatophore packets attached to them at various times a year. Yeah, so it's it's still yet to be documented, though. I think there's a... We could get a camera out there in the end. Interesting, I'm sure. Well, for those that are interested, in February, I have an author coming on to talk about reproduction in the sea. It's going to be very, very lively. Yeah, I'm excited. Interesting to get some krill so questions. So many there. different, so many <laughs> different strategies. So I guess they probably reproduce mostly in the spring because that's when we have the spring upwelling, where a lot of the phytoplankton is starting up, more food available. Yeah, it's thought that they do. Um, they come to the surface in these large swarms that you'll see. It's it's thought that these swarms are are perhaps reproductive swarms, but it's not necessarily known. But they'll reproduce throughout the summertime. You can. In, during the summertime, which is what really what we know, the time of year we know the most about krill, you can find krill eggs and in the water almost all the time. You can find females with developed, um, developed eggs in, that they haven't released yet. So Busy animals. I guess that's why there's so many of them on the planet. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> so I want to hear more about the diurnal migration going from surface waters to depth. Uh, right off the coast here of California, we have such interesting seafloor features. We have our shelf, and then it drops off to deep water. And then in the Cordell area, we have Bodega Canyon. And I heard that krill have one of the longest diurnal migrations of, of any animal based on their body size, meaning day, how far they travel based on their body size. And c- tell us a little bit more about this migration. Yeah, this is something that I find, it, and it's not just limited to krill, but there, there's many different organisms that undergo this daily vertical migration up and down in the water column. And they do it really, you know, at during the daytime, they're quite exposed in the upper parts of the water when it's well lit. They're exposed to predators. So they often 
migrate down a couple hundred meters to get into low light areas where they're not as vulnerable to predation. And then at night, when they need to feed, they'll come up and feed basically under the cover of darkness. So krill will migrate down in the in the morning hours, and they go down to they can go down to a couple hundred couple hundred meters. If they're restricted by bottom depth, uh, we don't really know if they get right down along next to the bottom. If they stay a couple meters off the seafloor, they certainly get exposed to predation if they're down deep and in close relation to any bottom predators as well. But they do that migration every day. There is certainly a lot of variability in it. If you have a lot of food at depth, why do you need to come up at night to feed? So there's variability in whether an organism decides to come up or not. And then there's variability as far as uh, the very young krill do not migrate. And so they tend to stay in the surface waters feeding. uh, And once they get larger and they can undergo that migration, they'll do it. And one of the things that I'm not so clear on is swarming versus schooling, because they're in mass abundance when they're out there. And what do you, do you consider, it, I, and it sounds like there's a real difference between them, swarming versus schooling. Yeah, I've, it's, it's interesting to read up on, on krill, and I, people tend to think that the krill off our coast tend to swarm, and that means there's really no, there's no organization to it. There's no orientation of similar bodies, so not everyone's moving the same direction. But there are krill in other parts of the world. Most notably, there's a a very large species of krill off of Antarctica, and they tend to school. They tend to maintain similar body position and move through the water as a group. So despite being the same organism uh, or the same type of organism, they have these different behaviors. We tend to see mostly swarming here. All right. So what about, is this a strategy for predation, avoiding predation, to stick together like that? or Yeah, it's interesting because it tends to also draw predators when you're like that, yeah. right? But it is overall a theory or a strategy to be in a larger group and hopefully your, your neighbor gets picked off by the predator and it's not you as well. Because out there isolated alone, it's a more of a certainty that you will be picked off by a predator as well. And they don't always school. They don't always swarm. They're not always in this. But they are together uh, quite a bit. When you often come across krill, they're in in dense aggregations. Okay. So sometimes they could be a little bit more spread out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, my knowledge of krill and most people's knowledge of krill comes from net toes. And so when you tow a net from maybe 200 meters up through the water to the surface, you don't know if, if the krill that are in the bottom of your net, you know, a big handful of krill, you don't know if they came evenly spaced throughout the water column or if there was just one little packet that you got. Um, so that's one of the hard things. That, you know, nets are commonly how we sample krill, but it doesn't tell us as much about the spatial variability in krill. That is important, really, really important to predators especially. And that's a big deal what your work is on too. I'm For folks tuning in, I'm talking with Jeff Dorman of the Farallon Institute here on Ocean Currents and we're talking about krill, one of the biggest or smallest but most important forage species here in the Pacific Ocean. But from what I'm learning, they're also worldwide, which I'm fascinated by, 85 species, 86 species. So another thing is about their ability to go without food and shrink. We were just talking about this earlier, and krill have the ability to just kind of respond to the lack of food by just shrinking. That's amazing. I mean, I wish humans could do that so quickly, but (laughs) they do it pretty quickly. Yeah, they absolutely do. And and the the krill that that 
we know the most about this is Antarctic krill. Antarctic krill tend to be the most studied, although Euphasia pacifica off our coast are quite well studied as well. But the Antarctic krill can go hundreds of days, multiple, maybe up to 200 days without feeding. Their body weight, they shrink, they get smaller. And then as soon as their food resources kick off again, and then they can begin feeding again. And I think I, I'm not an expert on Antarctic krill, but I think a lot of that is due to you have a period of darkness there where there is no phytoplankton mm. um, and there is no food resources that are driven by primary productivity. And so they need to be able to overwinter and, and survive that. Do we know about our krill populations off our coast in terms of winter? You know, we know the summer and the spring are big time for the food web and, and krill, but what about the winter? Do we know much? We don't know very much, um, and I think a lot of that is because of exactly what you just said. The productivity is really at its peak in the summertime. Uh, it's a little easier to go out in boats in summertime, although certainly very can be very windy out there. There's much less known in the wintertime. It's an area where we probably need to do more research to get a better handle on it. So we've noticed, and I'm curious if this is something that, that your folks have studied, is that spring upwelling, the the winds are getting stronger and more persistent, meaning they keep blowing and blowing and blowing. And that time where the water typically relaxes is is sometimes not happening. What happens to the food web then, or I guess krill, or all the larvae that are getting released when we have these stronger, windier conditions in the springtime? Yeah, so the interplay between wind events and then relaxation events is really important for maintaining productivity over the continental shelf. And you you made a reference to potentially these winds are getting stronger, and we think that may be the case. As climate change occurs and as the difference between the difference in temperature between the, the ocean and the continent changes that will potentially increase winds along our coast and cause more upwelling. On the face of it, that sounds like a great thing. More upwelling tends to bring more nutrients to the surface and have greater productivity. But if things aren't retained over the shelf where that productivity happens, they can be pushed offshore, then those krill aren't going to be in a very habitable location to grow because there typically isn't a whole lot of productivity off there and also to reproduce. So in some ways, having the interplay between an upwelling event to pull nutrients into the upper photic zone, basically where the photosynthesis happens, and then having it relax so things tend to stay in that uh, region is important. And yeah, that may be changing. It's certainly, we expect that it will change if we changed uh, the wind patterns. Interesting. I think it also affects other species too. Their larvae, like rockfish, if they get pushed offshore away from kelp beds, other species too. So it'll be interesting to Absolutely. see. Absolutely. Dungeness crab, another yeah. one. Yeah. So what is the ultimate goal that you'd love to understand about krill? There's still so much that we need to learn about krill. And I, you could look at it on a, a very large scale or a very small scale. I tend to think of it on a small scale. There's a lot of behavior in krill that I don't think we understand. And it goes back to really how we sample them. We sample them with big nets. We sample them with acoustics. But that doesn't really tell us much about the individual krill and how it reacts to changes in temperature, how it reacts to maybe changes in these currents pushing it further offshore. It's, it has a strong ability to migrate, to move up and down in the water column and to move away from situations, maybe not spatially, like horizontally, like a fish could, but it can move itself vertically. And that changes 
the type of environment that you're exposed to off our coast very quickly. So I tend to want to, I think about the small-scale krill and understanding what the individual does when it when it's migrating, but it comes across food. Does it stop? Why does it need to go up to the surface and be uh, influenced by predators? So that's where I think there's a lot to learn. And that really will have to happen more visually with cameras, with video, potentially with, with other means like that. Is there much understanding about krill presence with other models uh, like chlorophyll that we study from satellites? Yeah, I, I don't know a whole lot about sort of, I mean, there's often, there are regions that tend to be hot. We call them hot spots of krill. And are those related to, to increased food productivity or just currents that move them around in those regions? And I think it's probably a little bit of both. I mean, the chlorophyll is at the mercy of the currents. The krill are mostly at the mercy of the currents. And so if they get moved together, then they, they coexist together. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you, your organization got a Google Impact Challenge, Challenge in the Bay Area, a special grant to help a little bit more with your understanding. What is, what is the plan here with yeah. your, your big project? So the Google Impact Challenge was an was a event that was open to any Bay Area nonprofits. And we applied, and they really liked the idea that we put forth, which was to try to take traditional oceanographic sampling, which is really important and has taught us a lot about the ocean, but um, take the idea of going out and towing nets and instead of doing that, can we put out some cameras in the coastal ocean that just take pictures and send us back imagery of krill so we can get an idea of how much krill is out there at different times when we're not out there towing nets. It costs so much money to go out on a boat for you know, a week at a time and to go. And then you get these jars full of krill. They have to be processed. It takes a long time to sit there and look at a microscope and smell formaldehyde drifting up at you. And it's not easy to do. So it may be that it would take three months before you really understand what the krill productivity was from when you sampled. And then the problem is you have to go do it again. And Mm -hmm. it's expensive again. So the idea that we can put cameras out there in the coastal ocean that can take pictures of what's there at different times. And maybe it's every day, maybe it's every hour we get a picture back. And then we have the information much faster. We have so much greater temporal resolution. So instead of knowing what's happening every three, four, five, six months, we could tell what's happening every day. And how did the krill the abundance, how did it get moved around? How did it change in relation to this big wind event? We really can't get that with the type of sampling we do now. And so, yeah, Google.org liked our idea. And, I, you know, I think they like the idea of bringing new methodologies and new technologies to get better data. And that will allow us to, you know, hopefully better understand krill and other forage and manage the coastal oceans better, you know, better understand yeah. how they're changing and, or how they're not changing. Well, I think also another piece of that that's interesting is the application towards predicting where whales might be. And we've talked on the program before about the, the challenge that we have in the Bay Area with having a major shipping port in San Francisco Bay and also an area where a lot of endangered large whales like to be eating. And do you think we could ever get to a point? maybe with predicting where krill is and maybe predicting where whales might be to help with shipping? That's like a big goal, it's right? A, it's a big goal, <laughs> but it'd be wonderful, right? I mean, shipping industry is a, is a huge industry for the region. 
understanding. Obviously, the ships do not want to be striking whales, right? I mean, these these two large organisms out there, these big ships and these big whales, if we can keep them separate, it'd be fantastic. And often those whales are in the place they're at because of krill. So we have on our on our website at Farallon Institute, we have 16 years worth of acoustic data, which we've analyzed. So krill can be sampled acoustically where a ship drives over a certain part of the ocean and it pings down acoustics. It's and like a fish finder type thing? It's like a fish finder. And basically from looking at the different frequencies that it uses and the differences in how those frequencies come back, we can say with a decent amount of certainty that, you know, okay, this signal is from krill. So it's a very easy way to sample. And we've processed about 30 different cruises from 16 years. And when you have that length of time series, you can begin to say, hey, krill tend to be in this spot almost every year, even if it's a high productivity or a low productivity year. They tend to be right here at Bodega Canyon. And so it, yeah, begins to allow you to make some really broad generalizations. And then what gets difficult with maybe shipping traffic is, okay, well, that tells us the seasonally where they are, but then the day-to-day, how do we, how do we take that next step? Yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure we'll be tracking it from the sanctuary standpoint. And, of course, NOAA National Marine Fisheries. Well, we're going to take a short break half an hour of krill talk, and I have so many more questions. (laughs) You're tuned to Ocean Currents here on KWMR. This is Jennifer Stuck. to our conversation here on Ocean Currents about krill, this incredibly important species that's worldwide. We have species here in California, a big part of our food web, and um, talking with Jeff Dorman from the Farallon Institute all about the work that they're do- he's, he's doing with his, his fellow colleagues about understanding krill and their movements and what affects them. So I wanted to talk a little bit about, since it's such a big species in terms of their importance to the food web, what are some of the effects of warming oceans, warming ocean on on krill that we know about? Yeah, I I don't think we know a whole lot about it, um, but we do know about their metabolism and how they work. Um, I've done a, a decent amount of work trying to model krill, so trying to understand how they're actually the way their growth happens, the way their reproduction happens, um, changes in response to uh, both food and temperature. And one thing we've really found is that if you put krill into warmer temperatures, they aren't able to grow as fast. And that's often because so much of the energy they ingest goes out to respiration just to keeping their metabolic activity going. And so I think that's probably one of the biggest concerns for krill is that you, while they might not die, they might just not grow as big or as fast. And so if you're a predator who rely on krill, the krill that you're eating might just be a little bit energetically not as good. I mean, you, you won't get as much energy from that krill. So you have to feed more to get the same level of energy for yourself. Here's a crazy question. This may not be the right question for you, but people ask me this all the time. How do whales find krill? This is probably more of a whale person question, but maybe you have some insights. 
I don't know. It's a great question. I would think there's some sort of, we're able to detect them with acoustics, right? I mean, I would guess that whales are pretty good at detecting them with acoustics, especially if they're all packed together and, and have a big signal as well. I've never, you know, I've not been out in the ocean to see them feeding on krill specifically. Um, so I don't have a whole Jeff, lot of Jeff, we need to get you out in the ocean. I am telling you, I used to spend a lot of time out there. Now I, I tend to model it a little bit more, unfortunately. Oh, we'll have to get you out because watching whales feed on krill and fish is amazing. Right. Yeah, I was asking about that because we've had El Nino years and this in- interesting phenomena happening called the blob. And I remember very keenly last year we did our annual field seminar to Cordell Bank and there were not a lot of whales around. It was very warm water and... You could tell the ones that we did see were moving, like looking for food. Right. And, and you know, that, there's another aspect to this. Like I, I mentioned the direct impact on krill, but, you know, a warmer coastal ocean makes it much harder for upwelling to occur, for upwelling of nutrients to break through that the barrier of warm water on top of cold water. And so you might have just less productivity in the overall ecosystem, and that will certainly impact if there's less phytoplankton out there, it'll impact the krill and the other phytoplankton, the, the other forage, excuse me, the other zooplankton, the other forage species, every, anyone that feeds on phytoplankton. So, yeah. So from the response, of this, the response in the food web with that, so the years that we don't have a lot of krill, we know that Cassin's auklets on the Farallon Islands you met, might forego reproducing or abandon their their eggs or their chicks, and that's a result of less food availability. And so they may have a slower time recovering as a, a bigger species higher on the food web. But how about for krill? If they have a bad year, do yeah. they come back? They tend to come back very fast. And I think that does have to do with the shorter lifespan. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there's not a whole lot. I mean, there's not a whole. If you have a bad year one year, you can it can be boom the next year. If there's a lot of phytoplankton. Interesting. Yeah. Well, along with warming, the other big impact that we're considering, especially here on the West Coast, which is really going to see the effects of ocean acidification first, is what's the impact of more acidic water on krill? I don't know if there's been many studies done. I know there's been a lot on shellfish, and Mm -hmm. especially in their larval stages. And now we've known some new research on Dungeness crab. That's not so promising for crab, but how about for krill? You know, I've read a few studies that have looked at ocean acidification or have done experimental studies with more a more acidic environment on krill. And the biggest impact is on hatching success. So I think those young larval stages or just the eggs themselves where you have maybe a 20% decline in the hatching success. And so, yeah, that may have impacts down the road. They tended to find that the adults did okay under those environments. I mean, the West Coast is a naturally more acidic environment than other areas. And so the organisms out here may be slightly more adapted um, to deal with that sort of thing with more acidic events, but certainly not on the level of what we expect to see due to climate change. Well, and they seem to be a very adaptable species as they are able to adapt with food um, reduction and and being able to still survive through that. So that maybe that's another contributor to being a very adaptable species. Lucky for krill. Yeah. Well, we have just a few minutes left. And, you know, I want to ask a bit about some of the bigger issues with krill. We focus on them because they're such an important species with the food web and fisheries and megafauna. But we have some larger issues of harvesting for krill happening around the globe. And where are the hot spots for harvesting happening? Yeah, the largest the largest harvest of krill happens off of Antarctica. And that is by far and away the largest. There is some harvesting that happens off of Chile. 
some off of Canada and some off of Japan as well. And yeah, that's an interesting, it's an interesting resource to take because so much of the upper trophic levels that we're also harvesting, especially here in the California current, they all rely on krill. They eat krill. And so if you shortcut them, if you take that krill out of the system, then you're basically going to have less of those top producers. And California has been, I think, or the Pacific Fisheries Management Council that manages the the federal fisheries, I think has been very forward thinking in that they have limited harvesting uh, or excluded harvesting of krill just for that reason. And even other unmanaged forage species that sort of fill that same middle role that krill does, those have recently said, until we know a little bit more, let's not harvest these because these are what's feeding so many of these fisheries, which are important for our coastal communities and for the wonderful seafood we enjoy. It's so great to hear that the precautionary principle works and yeah. that we're doing that here and on the West Coast. And we'll hear a little bit more about that on our Positively Ocean segment coming up. Where does this krill harvest go? It's used for a couple different products. Let's just talk about that a little bit. Yeah, the one that, that everyone may have seen, unless you're uh, in, in maybe if actually you do some aquaculture, you may have seen it in other places, but I've seen it uh, as krill oil, you know, as, an, as a alternative to fish oil, high in omega-3s. Uh, and, you know, very good for you. So I, you do see that a little bit. Most of it goes to aquaculture to feed maybe a fish farming operation. So they harvest the krill and then feed it to the, the fish that they're trying to harvest. It's crazy. We have to take fish out of the ocean right, or right. krill out to feed fish that are being... Raised in pens. Ah, yeah. That's a topic for another show. But that's one reason to eat locally harvested, sustainably harvested salmon, because they eat krill. And so you get all the health benefits from eating the fish. Yeah, that's what gives them their little pink, their pink color as yeah, well, which sad. is kind of cool. I, I, when I heard that they have to dye the yeah. farmed fish because they don't get that same, it's kind of it's it's interesting. It's scary, it's interesting. isn't it? Yeah. Wow. Well, any last things you want to share before we turn it over to our last segment of the show today, Jeff? No. I, thank you so much for having me here. It's been so fun to share the thrill of krill with you and all the <laughs> listeners out there. And avoid the um, krill pill. <laughs> <laughs> avoid the, oh, I like it. But yeah, I mean, krill and other forage, uh, we tend to think of, rightfully so, we think of our coastal ocean and we think of the fisheries that that are wonderful for our our coastal communities and provide wonderful seafood to us Californians. But they all depend on what's happening lower down the the food web. And so understanding what happens with krill, with other forage species like sardine and anchovy and herring, it's really important and uh, important for the whole ecosystem. They're, They're at the center of the whole ecosystem. Thank you. And how about the website for your organization if people want to learn more about the projects you're working on? Yeah, we can be found at, at farallaninstitute.org. It's really a great organization that's doing holistic ecosystem science and trying to understand the coastal oceans so that we can better manage for the changes that are coming and, and manage our fisheries so that they continue to be healthy and sustainable. So it's great work we're doing. Thank you. It's excellent. It's great to hear more science happening around here, applying to our incredible coastal ecosystem of California. Well, thank you, Jeff. I'm going to turn it over here in a little bit to our new episode of Positively Ocean. This is a segment that is being produced by a volunteer of mine, Liz Fox out of Berkeley, which on today's program focuses all about krill. So stick with us here on KWMR Ocean Currents. Hi, this is Liz Fox at 
Positively Ocean, where we celebrate the ocean and look at what's working well. This week's story takes us from the Ross Sea in the Southern Sea off Antarctica to the entire west coast of the continental United States. Although Antarctic fishing grounds are extraordinarily remote, fleets from dozens of countries compete for the bounty of fish and crustaceans, including krill. But things are starting to look better for wildlife there. Just over a week ago, 25 nations agreed to protect a 600,000 square mile area, making the world's largest marine protected area. That's more than 3.5 times the size of California, and it will be off-limits to commercial fishing, including krill, starting in December 2017. The Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources, which coordinated the multinational effort, also renewed the limits they set for krill fishing in specific areas outside of the marine protected area for five years instead of the usual three-year renewal. Bill Duros, regional director on the West Coast for the NOAA Office of the National Marine Sanctuaries, sees the importance of the marine protected area and the krill kill limits in the Southern Sea. And one of the central purposes for that is to protect krill abundance, which is really important down in the Southern Ocean and which has been fished pretty heavily down there. And that new uh, marine sanctuary down off Antarctica is designed to protect krill, among other species. Although krill live throughout the world ocean, Antarctic krill is harvested the most. Researchers and scientists worry that taking too much biomass out of the lower parts of the food web can be dangerous for the fish, mammals, and birds that feed on them. What makes krill so special is that they are primary consumers. That means they transform what they eat, teeny tiny photosynthetic plankton, into energy that bigger organisms can eat in the form of their two-inch shrimp-like bodies. Fish as small as anchovies, seabirds like penguins, and even the largest animals that roam the earth, blue whales, feed exclusively on krill. That's why California scientists, conservationists, and decision makers in the fishing industry banned a krill cull before it began. In 2006, Duros was superintendent of NOAA's Monterey Bay National Marine Sanctuary when he proposed a krill ban to the Pacific Fisheries Management Council, which sets catch limits for commercial fishing on the West Coast, from California to Washington. There was no local krill industry at the time, but the Fisheries Council valued a policy that would protect food for sea life in the National Marine Sanctuaries. But human pressures increasingly jeopardize krill populations throughout the world ocean, putting all of the animals that depend on them at risk. Our burning of fossil fuels changes temperature and acidity in the ocean, wind patterns, and ocean currents, which impact how and where krill can live and reproduce. And human demand for krill is on the rise. People eat krill in traditional dishes throughout Asia. And in the West, dietary supplement companies market the krill pill for omega-3 fatty acids. But the bulk of caught krill becomes fodder for fish in aquaria and aquaculture and for livestock on farms. Taking krill out of the oceanic food web and placing it on our tables in one form or another can further stress species already in peril, like the endangered blue and fin whales, salmon, and rockfish. So to protect prey in the Pacific, in 2009, the Pacific Fisheries Management Council expanded the krill ban to span from the entire range of California, Oregon, and Washington shores out 200 miles to sea in perpetuity. That's a lot of commitment at the federal level. But that's not all. Again, Bill Duros. Another cool thing that took place as part of this process down here 
was the state of California closed some loopholes that existed in state law to prohibit the harvest of krill in state waters and the landing of krill on any um, at any of the ports in California. And Oregon and Washington also adopted a few other legislative changes that made this a complete and consistent ban across the West Coast. With nowhere to land or process krill on the West Coast, and with protections that cover most of the natural range of krill in the sea, Duros is content. So far, I'd, I'd call it a success story. So uh, no news is good news on, on this front. This is an example of how to do right by the ocean folks. Until next time, I'll be searching for all things positively ocean. For Ocean Currents Radio on KWMR in West Marin, this is Liz Fox reporting in Berkeley, California. Thank you, Liz Fox, for another wonderful segment of Positively Ocean, really highlighting some of the conservation successes that apply to krill and Uh, That took some leadership from our West Coast National Marine Sanctuaries that proposed this ban of krill to the Pacific Fisheries Management Council. And then it was applied even across the other states as well to help protect all that feed for fisheries and for all those megafauna seabirds and whales. So excellent. And also the Ross Sea Marine Protected Area in, in Antarctica, which I believe is just the first step in protecting larger areas down there, too. So we'll have to keep our ears posted on that. I want to say thanks to Jeff Dorman for being on the show today and Liz Fox, producer of Positively Ocean, featuring things that are working well in the ocean. Ocean Currents is the first Monday of every month, 1 to 2 p.m., and we have a podcast. You can go to iTunes and look for Ocean Currents there or go directly to cordellbank.noaa.gov to hear past episodes. This is the 10th year of Ocean Currents on the air here at KWMR. And in the 10th year, I finally started a Twitter feed. So Ocean Currents is on Twitter. You can follow Ocean KWMR to get information about this program and other programs um, supporting web links that we feature here on Ocean Currents Radio. I love hearing from listeners. So if you have ideas or topics for questions or questions, comments, please email me, cordellbank at noaa.gov. That's C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K at, at N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. Or tweet at OceanKWMR. We'll be back next month focusing on rockfish. Uh, Another West Coast species issue is the rockfish conservation areas that have been here on the West Coast. And we're going to catch up and find out what those are all about and how rockfish are responding to that. So stay tuned on Ocean Currents. Thanks so much for listening. Enjoy the ocean, bay, or whatever body of water you can get into safely. This has been Ocean Currents here on Community Radio for West Marin. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marine Community Radio KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To contact the show's host, Jennifer Stock, email me at jennifer.stock at noaa.gov. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov. Thanks to bensound.com for royalty-free music for the Ocean Currents podcast. For more info, visit www.bensound.com.